As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best and economics, finance, investment, and international relations, find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. I've got to talk about the long term, and I can do that with Joyce Chang, chair of global research at J.P. Morgan, who I really don't like because she put out a seven-page special with a giant Phil Schwagel, Mike Ferroli helping out, Jan Lois and the rest of J.P. Morgan on the fiscal state of the country. Joyce, I've got to read every word of this report, and it's a path out to 2052. Nobody's talking about this except you. How ugly is it for the nation in our fiscal policy out 30 years. It's looking pretty ugly, Tom. I mean, we're looking at debt levels that are going to a record level. We're close to 100%, going to 170%, 188%. And if you take a look at our view that 10-year Treasury yields are at 5.5% by the end of the decade, you're well north of 200% of GDP on the debt level. And this is going to raise real questions about fiscal sustainability and the debt trajectory um, if we see interest rates continue to rise. Because the CEO right. on a 10-year view is using only 3.8% for their treasury yields. You know, Tom, we've got 3.35% by the end of the year. You know, you've got here. a great set on this call. The only one that looks tanned and rested, by the way, is Feroli. And we know, you know, he's leading a cushy life. Let's start with the tanned and rested Feroli. Do we have the productivity and spirit of this economy, the little growth rate of Joe Stiglitz to grow ourselves out of this conundrum? Well, you've got to look at productivity for the first half of the year, and it was, as Mike says, atrocious, nearly 7% decline, and we're looking at pretty poor productivity ahead. So you take any metric, any metric, you know, Larry Summers, Jason Furman, and you look 10 years out, and on our view, you're at something that looks really unsustainable. And I think this is a conversation that's going to start right now, because the real conversation is still on where are we at in the cycle, and what kind of landing is it? Is it a hard land? or softening. Yes, we're avoiding an eminent recession, but we've got to look at what potential growth is um, going forward, and we have it at only one and a half percent going forward. All right, Joyce, that's exactly where I wanted to go. If we could put this moment into the trajectory of 30 years, what would it look like? Would it be a pivot point to add more debt ahead of the tsunami, or would it be a pivot point to some sort of higher inflationary regime because of the geopolitical backdrop and the reshoring that you're seeing by a lot of companies? 
Well, there's the reshoring, the deglobalization, but there's also just poor demographics that we're talking about here. Um, and that's kind of a trend that we're seeing look in Europe and China as well. But it's taking potential growth down. And we put that along with you know what we see as labor productivity, which is too optimistic in the congressional budget you know, line. And that really is a, a key reason why we think the potential growth, the, the productivity is going to be lower going forward. You know, on top of that, we do see rising treasury yields that are on the horizon. So you take a look at just where we are with the primary deficit, and you're going up to levels that really do point to debt sustainability when we look at the debt service. And this is and you take a look at this, and it, yeah, it's going to just, um, you know, really with the health care spending, that's going to go up because of the demographics. And this is one reason why a lot of people have the confidence to go into longer-term treasuries, because they say there is no way that this nation, given all the debt, can allow yields to climb for a persistent level because of that debt sustainability. Before getting into the theory of that, I want to go to the moment that we're in, because we're getting a lot of gloom out of Wall Street. A lot of the analytic notes are basically saying people are way too optimistic. The rally doesn't really count. It's a bear market rally. And then you can see it continue to bleed up, the rally gaining steam. What makes for this huge divergence between the tone among the top Wall Street analysts and the tone among traders in the trenches? Well, look, we've seen bear market rallies like in March, and then the market sold off again. And that's the question, where are we right now? Look, it's just clear that the Fed has a lot more work to do. And I think we're all looking at what's going to come out on Wednesday with the CPI number. Now, Feroli has the forecast at 8.7%. I mean, that's still going to keep the Fed on high alert. And we have 75 basis points in our forecast for what the Fed has to do, and still 25 basis points in November, December. But a terminal um, rate, which we were talking, you know, three and a quarter. Now we think it go up to three and three quarters percent before we really see um, inflation concerns come down. Now, it's not the cyclical um, inflation. It's the structural inflation. So it's the wage growth, but also rent inflation, which we have sort of north of seven percent wage growth is north of five percent. So that's what we're focused on, you know, in the coming days. A soft landing, I think, is going to be difficult. This um, immaculate disinflation scenario. I think it's going to be very difficult to see that play out. Well, and obviously we'll be watching the inflation data on Wednesday, but we'll be viewing it through the lens of the jobs report we got on Friday, which showed an incredibly strong labor market still and escalating wage pressures in the economy. Yet that strong jobs report runs in contrast to some softer data we have seen in other parts. And I'm just wondering if you can glean a consistent message from the economic data we are seeing now. Look, we have come into this, um, you know, this part of the cycle with excess savings, and that's actually been a real cushion across developed markets and um, also in emerging markets. But that excess savings is being, you know, going to weigh down. So on the third quarter of the year, we have um, just, you know, um, 1% growth for the U.S. Uh, that's what we're looking at. But you've had very strong wage growth, you know, the labor market being very strong, also your know, consumers holding it because of this excess um you know, savings that they come into the cycle with, but you're going to you work through some of that by the end of the year. So I think we also have to look at what's happening outside of the United States. I mean, we've got Europe numbers sliding. China sort of has disappointed on the stimulus. And on top of that, remember that these moves in the month of August are on very, very poor liquidity. I mean, we're heading into some of the worst liquidity months where liquidity is really amplified positively and negatively. 
So we're at a point in the cycle right now where there's a relief of no imminent recession. But I just think that the liquidity also amplifies um, these moves. We could see, see a very choppy market um, ahead. Well, Joyce, you mentioned China, and obviously we consider it from an economic standpoint, but there's geopolitical risks to consider as well as we see continued drills happening in and around Taiwan. How do you view just the tension between the U.S. and China, potential decoupling further of the world's two largest economies and what that ultimately is going to mean for the trajectory of the global economy moving forward? Look, when we think about decoupling, we have to think about what's desirable and undesirable. And you really have to separate the global manufacturing hub from some of these issues, which are much more about national security and critical infrastructure. But that's pretty tricky. And that's what U.S. Taiwan is showing us when we look at just the concerns about the supply chain, because you have so much of the supply chain really that does move through uh, the Taiwan Straits. And when we look at this and revisit what the precedents are, 1995, 96, when you had um, these kinds of tensions, you had a financial market solve, but not that much impact to the real economy. Now the economies are much more integrated between um, Taiwan's dependency on Hong Kong and China trade and also the global supply chain. So I think that this is a tricky moment. I'm not so sure you're going to see these military exercises come to a halt as quickly as people are uh, you know, hoping will yeah. occur. Joyce, I want to go back to your wonderful fiscal essay. Folks, you can get that from J.P. Morgan. It's just a really tour de force with Phil Schwegel of uh, CBO. Joyce, a simple question for our listeners on radio, our viewers on TV. Is the United States becoming like France? Look, what we're doing is really going to affect future generations if there isn't some attention that's paid to the fiscal and the debt trajectory. I mean, we're looking at debt servicing costs that are going to double here and you know, record levels of debt that we've never seen before. So simply, the fiscal outlook is unsustainable. So you could compare it to France, you could compare it to Japan on the debt ratios. But I think that it is really a moment where you have to look at what needs to be done, particularly if we see Treasury yields continue to rise because all of this looked very benign when we were at zero Treasury yields. But you really can uh, see how this actually can change by the course of a decade. We're not talking 50 years. Joyce Chang, thank you so much. A tour de force with J.P. Morgan as always. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. A good time to Segui over to Peter Shear. He's head of macro strategy at Academy Securities. Academy is in Annapolis and, of course, is a Wall Street shop with a huge military bent. Peter, I would be remiss if I didn't speak to you of your board's esteemed public service 
and their thoughts on what we're seeing on the Pacific Rim and Taiwan. Has that affected your call across the broad market? Yeah, it's something we're very focused on. We have 17 retired generals and admirals who serve as our geopolitical intelligence group, and about 50% of the company are veterans. So first, it's very near and dear to our hearts, but I think we are looking at the escalation of what China is doing, and it doesn't necessarily turn into something military, but it plays on this theme that we've been seeing China separate from the rest of the world, become much more inward-looking, and China is going to continue to develop relationships with autocratic nations at the expense of dealing with the West. Peter, how much do you buy into this rally that we've seen, the 13% gain in the S&P since that mid-June low? How much do you view this as wishful thinking at a time of so much geopolitical and inflationary uncertainty? Ooh, I would say I think it's very wishful thinking. Having said that, with VIX down at 22, I like the idea of just buying calls and puts coming into the end of the summer. There is so little liquidity. Either side could get traction. It feels right now, again, the bulls are getting traction, especially after we you know, survived Friday. But to me, the inventory overhang, that remains a big concern. And I'm just a little bit suspicious about how good the job data was on Friday. Suspicious in that it's not going to turn out to be that strong once we get the revisions, Peter? Yeah, there's already right now over the last four months, you've had this big disconnect between the establishment survey, which is the headline number, and then the household survey, which goes into the unemployment rate. There are about 1.8 million, million jobs different over the last four months, which is a pretty big thing. So if the household started to confirm what we're seeing in the establishment, that would mean that the unemployment rate is probably much, much lower, which puts pressure on the Fed, or we're going to get some revisions. And I suspect it's going to be more revisions to the establishment, and it'll pull us a little bit more in line with other anecdotal evidence on jobs. Does that mean you're more in line with the Fed pivot narrative? Yes, I think the Fed is going to have to pivot. I think the Fed's already gone too far. I think you're seeing inflation roll over. I think you see supply chains fix themselves, but it's the fact that the consumer looks like they're trying to buy things on discount, that you're seeing margin pressure. I think all those are actually going to be relatively, I don't know that we get to the point of being deflationary, Right. I think by the end of this year, we're not talking about inflation anymore. Peter, it's Inside Baseball Monday. That's what you do when the Padres are swept by the Dodgers, so we're going there. Peter, I think I just heard you say you want to do a collared transaction because we may go long or we may go short. You and I remember long ago when you do like a six-option trade and Peter Shear would do an iron condor or something like that. Can you be creative in options now, or do you eat it all up in premium? You eat some of it in premium, but again, as you mentioned, VIX is all the way back to 22. So VIX is pretty low given the day-to-day volatility yeah. we're seeing. So I think you can trade your way out of it. Pete, how much is a Fed pivot going to be positive for equities versus negative? I think it's going to turn up to be more negative at first. I think the realization that the market hasn't hit is the Fed is going to be pivoting because they've pushed too far. So I'm definitely not in the soft landing camp. I think we pushed too far. I think we're seeing the consumer rollover. I think you're seeing inventories build. So when people realize that we're going to have to pivot, the first reaction, yes, maybe we rally. And I think that's the stage we've been in. But then the reality is going to hit like, whoa, we have to be very careful. What are future earnings going to look like? And it's very encouraging to see this kind of merger Monday because you're seeing companies kind of accept new valuations. But I think we're a long way from being done, especially on the high flyers where they still want to get paid X. The buyers are at Y and we've got to sort themselves out. And I think, unfortunately, it's going to be closer to Y, the lower prices that come to fruition. Peter Shear, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Academy Securities there, particularly the update on their thoughts on what's going on in the Pacific Rim. Right now, we're going to recalibrate 
into the Wednesday Inflation Report with Dana Peterson. She's chief economist at the conference board with all of the ability of the conference board to look at a different set of data out there. And I want to go, uh, Dana, I know Lisa's really focused on a job full economy, but I want to go to your call for restriction by the Fed after Jackson Hole. Are we going to calibrate for September 1 after Jackson Hole? Do we just need to get to Wyoming before we can look to the Fed meeting? Well, Wyoming certainly is beautiful, but I think that the Fed is certainly data dependent. We're going to get several more readings on inflation, another jobs report, certainly updates on on GDP. And I think the Fed is going to be looking at all of these indicators to determine whether or not it needs to go another 75 basis points or 50 basis points. But I think whatever it is, the Fed is going to continue to raise interest rates to really arrest inflation. I mean, let's do the math here. If it's 175 beat move or it's 250 beat moves, which is a stick, I get it. But what's a so what, whether it's one move or two moves is a precursor to restriction. Does it matter? Well, I think, you know, just getting above 3% on the Fed funds rate, that's restriction. And, you know, we can sit around and argue about it, but I think the fact no, we that don't the do Fed- that on surveillance. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that the Fed's been raising rates this aggressively, this quickly, you know, it certainly is uh, going to feel restrictive. We're already seeing that show up in the GDP data. Dana, do you buy the data that we get on Friday? We heard Peter Scheer just earlier saying that the data doesn't seem to cohere with some of the granular on the ground specific in inputs. So do you think that it's going to get revised a lot lower and it's going to give a less rosy picture of the labor market? Well, I mean, it's I mean, how much can you revise down? That was an astounding number over more than half a million jobs added in July. That would be a huge downward revision. And whatever the revisions are, they're probably going to be minor. What the labor market's telling us is that we still have a very strong labor market. Many people are seeing their wages rise. Many people are being hired, especially in those in-person services that struggle to find workers. It's really it's really astounding what we're seeing. And I don't think that the numbers are lying to us. So let's talk about what we heard from Peter Buchvar, which I thought was really uh, fascinating that Tom brought up, that people are overhiring and companies are scarred by what happened post-pandemic scarred. when they uh, fired a lot of people and then had to bring on staff that just was not there. How much is that going to be a persistent theme throughout whatever happens in this next cycle? We think that labor shortages are here to stay. A lot of it's demographic. You have more people retiring from the labor market than you do young people available to refill those jobs. We also have very strict immigration policies in the U.S. um, that makes it very difficult to find labor uh, from outside of the country. And still, you have many people who are challenged with child care issues. Many people don't want to work two and three jobs. That's why they're trying to find uh, higher wage jobs. We think that this is just going to be an issue even beyond what we're thinking is going to be a a brief recession in the U.S. Okay, so what does that mean for how persistent upward pressure on wages is likely to be? Well, certainly if inflation continues to be elevated and the Fed struggles to get back down to the 2% inflation target, we think that there's probably the potential for a wage price spiral. Already, if you match up the PCE deflator uh, with the ECI, they're both moving together. And that's really a challenge that the Fed is trying to prevent from happening with its actions. But obviously, its actions 
have a lagged effect. It takes a while for us to see the real impact of it, as evidenced by how strong the payrolls report was on Friday. So can the Fed act quickly enough that they are actually going to be able to lasso that and get that under control? Or are we going to be looking at a situation where this actually does end up eventually out of the Federal Reserve's hands? Well, I think the Fed is acting as quickly as it can. I mean, other than raising rates every month, um, certainly at every meeting uh, since March, they've addressed, uh, they've raised interest rates, and I think the Fed's doing what it can. But as you said, monetary policy comes with a lagged effect. First, you're going to see the effects on things like mortgage rates and the housing market, and then consumer spending, and then inflation. And so it's going to take some time, but I, you know, we feel that the Fed can probably do its job and get things done right. in terms of bringing down inflation. Dana, does OER, does any measurement of housing rent or ownership get in the way of their plan? I mean, it can, can housing be such a crisis, so expensive, so persistent that it just gets in the way of their best outcomes? Well, surely housing is a huge uh, driver of inflation right now uh, for consumers in the U.S. And certainly as long as home prices, the valuations of new and existing homes continue to rise, that's going to show up in the OER and in rents with a lag, of course. And so that really does present a challenge for the Fed. Uh, Dana, I got to leave it there. Dana Peterson, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with the conference board. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. It's always an important conversation with Libby Cantrell, head of public policy strategy at PIMCO. But this morning, after historic uh, legislation, it's really critical as well. We're thrilled Libby Cantrell could join us here at our world headquarters. Libby, I want to cut to the chase. How do you put into process the legislation of thousands of pages? Well, that's a good question. Unfortunately, uh, Washington is quite uh, quite ex- expert at doing that. Um, most of bills uh, tend to be hundreds, if not thousands, of pages. Um, but I think that what uh, what this sort of underscores how quickly this bill was able to come together to be to be passed by the Senate, be passed by the House later this week, and then promptly signed into law, is that many of these ideas, Tom, mm-hmm. have actually been percolating in Washington for years. Uh, take the drug pricing right. in terms of allowing Medicare to, to negotiate drug prices with pharma. That is a concept that literally has been percolating since I was on the Hill back in you know, 2003. So in some ways, many of these ideas, again, have already been right. in text, uh, were able to be put into to legislation uh, immediately. Though The big question, of course, was just to get that fit, that unity, that unanimity right. among those 50 senators on the Democratic The question side. I asked our Jack Fitzpatrick, can the Republicans take it away if they win the House and the Senate? 
Can they take it away? Uh, it will be very difficult. And I think what you've seen, even with the Trump tax cuts, is it's very difficult to take things away, to take benefits away, particularly on something like the drug pricing for for mm-hmm. Medicare. That's something that uh, pulls incredibly well. More than 80 percent of Americans support that provision. Older people tend to vote. Uh, so particularly for that, uh, difficult to take away. And then on the climate uh, piece, and you know, as a reminder, $400 billion of you know, tax incentives for production <clears throat> and for consumption on the sort of the clean energy tax right. front. All of that, you know, pretty difficult to take away as well. And, and most of those uh, right. last for 10 years. And, and Lisa, I looked at the Medicare-Medicaid combination for federal budget. Thank you, Robert Jamison, for helping out of Washington. And not out of 65 and LBJ, but roughly Nixon, we've gone from 1% of GDP out really approaching 6% of GDP for those two programs. I did not know that. That's really fascinating and a reason why this has been such a big issue. And, of course, I looked at the pharmaceutical company's shares ahead of the open thinking that they'd be tanking because they were going to get less income from Medicare. They are not, Libby, which raises a question about what the tangible effect on investment will be from this bill. If even, you know, you had David Sowerby on earlier decrying some of the concerns about the taxes on buybacks, uh, share purchases, as well as uh, that minimum corporate tax imposed. Is there a corporate uh, uh, read-through that is not getting priced in, or is this not as significant a move in terms of of crimping profits, as some would say. Yeah, so Lisa, on your on your point about the the pharma companies, and um, they actually got a little bit of a lifeline over the weekend because one of the bigger provisions that would have that was in the bill uh, that would have required that uh, pharmaceutical companies negotiate with private insurers on on the pharma prices actually got stripped out of the bill because of some uh, parliamentary mumbo jumbo didn't qualify for the so-called reconciliation bill. So that's maybe why you're actually seeing a little bit of support uh, in those in those names this morning. Um, but overall, uh, you know, I don't think we should overstate the impact of this bill. I think invariably there will be winners and losers, losers like the pharmaceutical industry, uh, because some of those provisions obviously still uh, still still persisted. Uh, technology, uh, some of the companies, some of the companies that have been able to uh, take advantage of this sort of book income uh, 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 corporate t- tax rate as uh, sort of arbitrage will also uh, be losers. And then you know, big winners obviously renewable, which is renewables, which are really priced in. So I think sort of the macro impact or or even the sector impact has likely been pretty much priced in here. But overall, in sort of my world, the political impact, I don't think has actually been priced in. I think this is a, a huge boon for Democrats who really needed it, right? The price of gas, uh, uh, Biden's uh, disapproval ratings, the generic ballot, all have been major headwinds for the Democrats going into the midterms. And here they are. Here they are able to go in uh, at sort of the 11th hour uh, and really campaign on the fact that they can govern and that they can get a big piece of their agenda that they campaigned on in 2020 through, which was the climate piece. So Libby, what is the market read through in terms of if the Democrats keep the Senate, if the Democrats don't lose as much of the House, which seems to be the feeling that's increasingly getting speculated upon? Yeah. So I think, Lisa, the conventional wisdom that the Democrats will lose the House is probably right. If you look at history, right, since World War II, the party Mm -hmm. in power has lost an average of 25 seats in the House. So just have passed 
Cox's prologue, uh, Democrats face an uphill battle. But the margins there do count. You know, I think our view is that they could lose maybe as little, as few as 10 seats or as many as 50 seats, sort of depending on voter enthusiasm and what's actually happening mm. uh, in sort of October and, and to the to the buildup of November. Um, and that margin does matter because uh, in the long term, because that means if they lose fewer seats, then they're going to be able to more likely uh, recapture the House in 2024. On the Senate, though, and we've been saying this for a while, it's much more of a jump ball. Uh, the Senate tends to not be as much of a national election because, of course, only a third of the Senate seats are up for re-election. Mm -hmm. Republicans have actually a more difficult map uh, this this cycle. And some of the candidates uh, that ha are running on the Republican ticket in battleground states like Georgia and Pennsylvania, maybe even in Ohio, are less are sort of less experienced, more green, and as a result, uh, maybe have less of a chance to win, uh, even when the national mood is really much more supportive for Republicans. So I think bottom line here is the House is likely lost for Democrats, at least at this point, uh, but the margin does matter. The Senate much more of a jump ball. Yeah. Lastly, in terms of the sort of the the policy implications, though. As long as Republicans take back just one chamber, that means that Biden's legislative agenda for the next two years is likely, you know, dead or at least on ice uh, for for a bit. There's still some chance of bipartisan uh, legislation around tech and some other areas, but probably on ice. Uh, so that really is for the market's perspective what people will be really focused on. But again, for folks like me uh, are focusing a little bit on the longer term and sort of the read through for 2024 in particular. Well, Libby, you mentioned voter enthusiasm a moment ago. I'm wondering if there's a lesson to be learned from Kansas and the abortion vote there, the turnout that we saw, is there an underestimation of the galvanizing effect that some of the social issues like abortion may actually have on voters approaching the midterm beyond just kind of the macroeconomic environment? Yeah, again, and this is, again, another piece of good news that the Democrats uh, have had over the last several weeks. Of course, uh, voter turnout in Kansas much higher than expected. That ballot initiative lost by almost 20 points. Uh, now, there are some idiosyncrasies that I think are maybe difficult to extrap extrapolate from Kansas sort of nationally. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think it is, it, you know, I think that for Democrats, uh, their their big takeaway is that this is a galvanizing issue. Now, one important distinction of course, is that was a particular issue that was on the ballot mm. uh, versus just, uh, you know, uh, the midterm elections, which are more general, right. where candidates are on the ballot. Quickly, and this is completely unfair, but it's unfair Monday here, <laughs> uh, is, well, we have this ginormous legislation. Is this the window for President Biden to say he's a one-term president? I, I, I highly doubt he will I do that. Yeah. He I mean, theory, the theoretically, midterms. sure. Uh, I think he will not do that, uh, especially before the midterms. Um, but I think, Tom, it's it's a good point in that he will likely have to decide whether he really is going mm -hmm. to run for 2024 shortly mm -hmm. thereafter. Remember that in the, the debates start in June of next year. Uh, so we actually need to have a, a pretty good idea. Can't we be like the British? Where the hell is Pharaoh? Get Pharaoh He's back. He's not going to come back if you make yeah. that British Lisa, accent again. Uh, that old republic. Yeah. <laughs> Lisa, come on. The British, like, they get it done, Sunak, Truss, and all that. And Libby's depressing me with debate. You know, the debate started in June. 
Yes. Well, if, if yeah, if 2019 were any, how were many any, people will be on stage? Like I mean, who 42 knows? people. Well, yeah. look, I think that if I think if President Biden does not win, that we are going to see a very kind of open and potentially kind of messy and raucous primary on the Democratic side, and the same thing on the Republican. Well, side. last time wasn't raucous. No, no, no. Enough. Exactly. I think that will be <laughs> the last time it was just on one the side, British right? Do it so, come on, the British do it so I know. much. Well, it's also better. a parliamentary system, Tom. You know that. I mean, this is different. I do. It's a what? A parliamentary system. Tom knows system. a lot of things. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Thank you, Elizabeth. Control greatly appreciate that. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomer. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.